You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. We'll kick things off. As I say, thanks so much for coming. It's it's um, a genuine pleasure to see everybody. And I'm sort of really aware that time is more precious than ever before right now, you know, with ongoing lockdowns and homeschooling and all the many other pressures we have. So I feel kind of like it's a miracle to have anybody here at all, let alone um, apparently 32 participants. Uh, so yeah, th- thanks so much for making space in your day to come. I really appreciate it. Um, for the the few of you that I have I haven't met before, I'm I'm James Parker. I'm an academic at uh, Melbourne Law School. I'm a long time ILA member, and I'm going to be hosting um, this conversation on international law and the politics of computation today. We've got. Um, Several esteemed speakers, Professor Fleur Johns, Dr. Jake Goldenfein, uh, Dr. Andrea Leiter and Andre Dow, um, who, who I'm going to invite to introduce themselves actually more fully later on. Um, but I, before, before we get into all of that, I just want to begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people, um, that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. And so I want to pay my respects, therefore, to Indigenous elders past and present. And I also feel kind of obliged to acknowledge that um, though I'm speaking from Indigenous land, I'm speaking via, and we're going to be conducting this conversation via Zoom, and that the podcast is um, produced from the conversation is going to be um, accessed probably by via you know things like platforms like Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and so on. And I just want to sort of note that the becoming infrastructural of these kinds of platforms and others like them. Is precisely part of the kind of the collection of topics we're going to be talking about today, and and that this is something more than just like irony, you know. Um, this is a, a real and um, pressing political and legal challenge that we need to think about very seriously as public education is increasingly at the mercy of private interests, and where those private interests are increasingly big tech companies. Um. So with that being said, um, I also wanted to kind of just say, just say a few words about ILLA and, you know, just to note that it's a particular pleasure for me to be taking part in this celebration um, uh, uh, of ILLA and everybody in the orbit of ILLA, um, because if my maths are correct, I've been involved or associated with the Institute for 12 of its 15 years. So this is a celebration of 15 years of ILLA, and I've been there for 12 or here for 12. Um, having begun my PhD um, under the supervision of Sean McVeigh, uh, as part of Villa anyway, um, back in 2009, way back in the before times. Um, and so like, you know, I just want to, you know, just say out loud that like many of us here, I mean, I find it impossible to imagine myself as a scholar without the intellectual training and community and collegiality and friendships that Illa has provided. So I, I kind of wanted to say a big thank you for that. And I, this is a bit cheesy, but if people wanted to turn their mics on just quickly and, you know, give Illa and each other a bit of a round of applause, you know, you'd be very welcome to do that, you know. <laughs> no one will be able to hear it anyway, because Zoom will filter it out. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is, a, this is a festival and a celebration of a community, and I think that's really important. Um, my work um, has mostly been about law's relations with sound and listening. So I, I wrote a, a book on the trial of Simon Bikindi by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. 
um, for incitement to genocide with his songs. And I've written a bit about the gavel, the weaponization of sound, um, eavesdropping, often right through the work of artists and musicians. And it's only relatively recently that I've um, started to become interested in questions of computation, data science, AI, big tech, platform capitalism, and all these kind of synonyms or near synonyms. Because, you know, as these, as these fields become increasingly unavoidable and as it becomes increasingly hard to even do work in the humanities at all or to think about art or to think about technoscience or media without also thinking seriously about what um, Benjamin Bratton calls planetary scale computation, planetary scale computation. So my own work at the moment is on machine listening, um, which is maybe a term some of you are familiar with, maybe not, uh, but more or less that means, you know, the application of, of techniques from data science and machine learning to sound and speech. So that's things like Siri and Alexa, but also many of the covert surveillance programs unveiled by Edward Snowden that involved audio and automated transcription and so on. Um, but also thinking of the pandemic, things like automated COVID voice diagnostics or uh, COVID um, uh, detection, um, gunshot detection, uh, auditory scene analysis, music genre recognition, accent identification, uh, and also, you know, the kinds of automatic filtering, transcription and analytics currently are being applied to my voice uh, and this um, conversation by Zoom. So I feel like this trajectory, you know, from of my own work towards increasingly towards questions of computation, big tech, so on, is kind of typical of ILA as an institution over the last 15 years or 12 years that I've been involved. I could be wrong, but I think that when I arrived at ILA, um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm probably, this is probably some kind of egregious error, but I don't think anybody in particular was working on this stuff, or not many anyway. The tradition of law and humanities scholarship being undertaken at ILA in my time was more to do with, for example, law and literature, law and art, law and history, feminist, post-colonial critical legal studies. And so kind of emerging critical work on new media, science and technology, automation, digital culture has only kind of begun to sneak its way in a, a little more recently. And even though um, they also began elsewhere in a certain kind of way, um, I think this trajectory um, out of those traditions and towards this kind of new work um, is, is, is exactly the, the, the one that um, Fleur and Andrea and Andre and, and Jake have also um, undertaken in certain kinds of ways. So, you know, bringing to bear this new emerging work um, on law in their research and in the process, I think, or uh, hope, speaking law and jurisprudence back to these other fields, these other fields of, you know, in relation to digital culture or uh, automation or what have you. Um, so, as I said, I'd like to invite um, all of the, the panelists or conversationalists to introduce themselves in their own terms and exactly how they do that and why they do that and sort of where they come from. But, but before I do that, I'm just going to say a couple of words about format. Um, when we were preparing for this session, we took the conversations part of the Festival of Conversations quite seriously. Um, 
So we prepared some discussion topics um, together, shot some emails back and forth about the kinds of things we might like to talk about. Um, but we, we really wanted to have as fluid a conversation as we could, you know, a, a kind of a conversation about the state of the field almost. Like, what is this thing that we are all kind of doing? Um, I'm going to play host, um, but I'm not necessarily going to ask everyone every question, you know, I'm going to invite um, Fleur, Jake, Andre, and Andre to be bold and jump in and engage with each other. And we'll, we'll save some time for questions and conversation amongst the rest of the panelists at the end. And that Q&A bit is not going to be included in the podcast, but I would invite you also to, you know, feel free to use the chat liberally and, you know, pro provide some meta commentary and um, banter and things um, on the side as we, as we go through. So I kind of want to keep it kind of convivial and relaxed and fluid and things. So um, with all of that being said, then maybe it's time to finally have the, the, the panelists introduce themselves. I, I don't know who wants to begin. Maybe Fleur, would you like to begin by introducing yourself just briefly, however seems right to you, and then we'll, we'll track through and then get into the conversation. Thanks, James. Um, so hello, everyone. Thanks, Sun and, and everyone at ILA for this opportunity. I'm a long-time fan of ILA and a beneficiary of many um, ILA events over the years, so I, I'm always happy to celebrate and champion um, what you've got going on here um, and had going on for some time. And I'm talking to you from the uh, edge of um, Gadigal, unceded Gadigal and Bejigal lands in Sydney, um, and I, uh, where I am an international law um, academic at UNSW, working on digital technology, particularly in the humanitarian and development sector, emergency relief, that kind of thing. Um, I guess I first published on this um, probably about 2013. So it's been something I've been working on for a little while. Thanks. Thanks so much. And maybe Andre, would you like to go? Next, you're feeling brave. Sure. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate here at um, Melbourne Law School and at ILA. Um, and so my PhD project is um, really focused on looking at the way in which um, the UN has tried to engage with um, big data technologies. So um, I've been interested in both the way the UN has tried to use big data technologies to achieve um, human rights goals. And, and in the process, I've been kind of wondering, you know, how, how do those human rights goals shift as those technologies are, are being used? Um, and then also thinking about how the UN has tried to use human rights to discipline big data. Um, and in, in the same kind of way, thinking about how um, human rights as kind of a disciplinary tool as a set of regulations um, also shifts in, the, in that encounter. Um, yeah, so that's um, that's my sort of project. And I guess in terms of your question, James, about how we came to this sort of work, um, I, um, I mostly came to it from um, a kind of a, um, a, a jealousy about um, the, the kind of power and draw of people who talked about technology. I remember being at a conference um, where I was invited as a kind of a, with a, my human rights hat on, uh, but there were a lot of like tech entrepreneur type people there and the confidence with which they spoke about the future um, and the way they really owned that future um, 
kind of spurred me to to embark on this PhD because I wanted to have a bit have a bit of that power to to join them or to take them down a peg or two when they did. <laughs> well, actually, um, my family thought when I first had this PhD, they, they they were very excited because they thought that I would then be able to go on to do consultancies for Google and so on. But well, there's still time, um, Andrea, maybe. Sure. Thanks a lot. Um, great. So I do have to um, first echo what James said and say that I find myself here in a room of people that I haven't seen in a very long time ever since I left um, um, after my PhD at Melbourne University. But I do really see the contributors to all my academic work. So whatever I'm going to say here is really very much grown out of this ILA environment that was so, so, so influential and important for me. And it's wonderful to be here. Um, now I'm at the University of Amsterdam um, for a year now as an assistant professor, which is also a very nice place, um, but I still uh, miss Ila much more. <laughs> so my work um, was in the field of international investment law and the history of international investment law and basically was I was interested in working out how international law is implicated in producing and sustaining global inequality on a very broad scale, I would say. And so then, of course, how do I come from this field of work into what I do now, mainly blockchain technology and these questions? And it was really more or less by, by chance that I got wrapped up in this world of blockchain through private conversations of people having started working on blockchain technology and I was just very curious um, somehow I think that there is um, something in what Andre said I very much like the way you framed it the allure of power or the allure of um, futurist speaking that I sensed very much as well when I started doing work on blockchain and and also a certain freedom um, in working on it I think that um, from this experience of writing a PhD on the history of international investment law where I read through a lot of a lot of a lot of work in order to orientate myself find my my feet on this topic with blockchain it seemed to be very very novel and very uncharted territory so there was a lot of freedom of exploring in different direction that was that was very attractive and i mean i think that right now i would say i what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to bring this um, this conceptual thinking that I built up throughout my PhD and outside of it to bear on this phenomenon of blockchain technology because it comes on a wave of new vocabulary, um, big claims of disruption. It comes on a wave of gigantic capitalization. I think it's at like two trillion US dollars at the moment, the market capitalization of blockchain. So it's really an insane amount of money. And so I think that I really want to know what is going on here. What direction are we heading in and what are the things that govern this technology? How can we engage with it? Um, yeah, I would leave it at that. Thanks so much. And finally, Jake, I don't know, is it fair to say that you arrive at questions of computation and big tech and things from elsewhere? I mean, perhaps you should introduce yourselves prop yourself properly, but I'm not sure if, I wonder if you're the exception that proves the rule for the rest of us. Um, I don't know about that. Uh, so my name is Jake Goldenfein. I'm an academic at uh, Melbourne Law School. Uh, coming up to to have having that position there for a year, uh, which has been uh, a super exciting time, but a peculiar year. Um, I am coming to you from 
unseated Wurundjeri land as well, uh, close to the university, but not at the university where I would rather be talking to you than um, from my bedroom where I am right now. Um, so I uh, also want to really thank everyone involved and Ila for having me. So I, I did my PhD also at Melbourne Law School, but um, not necessarily as part of ILA. Uh, that said, the collegial um, the collegial experience that I had at, during that PhD was very much uh, ILA inflected, and and the the intellectual training uh, that um, that was happening through ILA, I feel like I um, was always sort of cherry picking at as well and doing my best to 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 connect to so uh while not necessarily uh always having been an iller person i consider myself a, a fellow traveler and i appreciate the opportunity to engage now and, and and also in in the future um i suppose i came to uh where i am now in terms of my work um uh through probably a similarly uh complicated path uh, I began uh, my PhD studying privacy law um, and uh, surveillance, particularly state surveillance. And then that sort of became a project about uh, law's engagement with automated decision-making. Um, and, uh, and I was carrying on research along those lines. And in fact, um, uh, Andrea and I had done some, some, some research, some really fun research together about blockchain and about uh, the relationship between lawmaking and, and, and technology and automation. But then I uh, was accepted for a, a postdoc position where I started, uh, I, I was doing primarily uh, platform regulation but under a philosopher in an information school. And so my sort of disciplinary orientation uh, got all kind of spun out. Uh, the kinds of people that I uh, started collaborating with expanded um, and, and uh, the sort of intellectual interests that, um, that drove me, of course, changed as well. Uh, and that was sort of a product of, of the environment and different political concerns uh, where I was. And so I suppose now I continue to work on both the relationship between law and automated decision-making. And, and I do a lot of that. I'm an investigator in the uh, ARC, Center of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making in Society, which just has been kicking off over the last year. And uh, in in in, in un, my projects, um, they sort of revolve around questions that I've always been interested in, uh, specifically um, why the law um, uses a particular conception of the human as a, a, a mechanism for the regulation of of or the oversight of of automated decision making. Why, where does this idea of a human in the loop come from? Uh, do we think that the accountability sort of rule of law mechanism that it um, is in pursuit of is, is sensible at, in, 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 in this technological environment? And how might we sort of meaningfully think about updating it? 
And, and the other sort of uh, trajectory of my work is, is in platform regulation, where I similarly uh, am very interested in the conceptions of human decision-making capacities and capabilities uh, that come out of economic and legal concepts that get put to work uh, in order to, to stabilize a set of social relations that are associated with the ascendance of platforms as an economic and governing logic. And uh, so, you know, how do we how do we square ideas of the human that are inherent to data protection law, consumer protection law, uh, administrative law, even with the concept of a of a user of a platform? Um, and, you know, I'm writing a paper right now that is just about this question. How did we get to the point where the law says you as the rational person are capable of selling the right to exploit all your ir irrationality? And, um, and, I, and I mean uh, to, to, to a digital service provider who's going to, to try and manage and predict your behavior through advertising. So uh, the relationship between technology and, and what it is to be a person and what law imagines it is to be a person um, is really the, 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 the tension that drives my work. Awesome. Thank you, Jake. Um, I'm wondering, Fleur, if you'd like to have a second crack, uh, maybe elaborate, elaborate a little bit on um, you know, what you're working on right now and maybe how you got there, because that sort of seemed the 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 way that everybody else um, ended up going. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to leave you hanging. Yeah, I, sh I was thinking I should have said <laughs> a little bit about, because it is interesting how one approaches these questions and obviously that bears upon um, the work that one does. So I came at it um, through work on financial models um, about 15 years ago and at various points I've done um, a series of different types of work on financial models that was informed actually by my experience as a practicing lawyer um, uh, in the US. Um, and I became interested in the way in which financial models kind of operated um, as almost like talismans for uh, large scale cross border investment and transaction and the legal documentation negotiation around those um, and operate and exerted a kind of oblique force within those that was both um, central to anchoring and, and informing contractual provisions, for instance, but could never be tackled directly by, um, by uh, legal argument or legal analysis. So I was fascinated by that. And so I did a, a series of work on financial models and I've done some work on other types of models. And um, one, as you probably know, one of the um, devices that is recurrent throughout financial models is a class of algorithms known as Monte Carlo algorithms, which are designed to try and um, incorporate into the financial model uncertainty around the value of the investment. And so it was really in trying to understand the interior of these and the way in which they articulate with um, iteratively with um, legal institutions, legal practices, that I kind of that I went to their margins. So this was a marginal practice embedded within um, the work of law, and then I went to their margins and, and became intrigued in these um, Monte Carlo algorithms, and then through that started investigating that body of work. So it was a really um, a series of, of um, investigations of what I would later come to term um, infra legal artifacts that led to the current body of work that is. Um, that is looking really overlaps quite a lot with Andre's work, it sounds like, um, in that I've been looking in particular at the way in which 
um, international organisations are prototyping and trying to encourage governments and, and NGOs and other parts of the international organisations to embrace um, digital technology and digital data and what are the implications of, of that. Um, so it was never really a kind of decision, I'm going to go and work in law and technology. It was a really very much a crab-like um, pursuit of research, in, research questions and techniques that led me to this. Thanks so much. Um, I feel like I feel like there's been a lot of terms in circulation. Um, so what have we had? We've had big data, the digital, you know, blockchain, which is um, you know, maybe a bit more specific somehow. But then we've also had like algorithms and Monte Carlo algorithms to be even more specific. And we've had we've talked a little bit about automation, automation, automated decision making, platforms, big tech. You know, like. I just wonder, we're not going to get to an answer, but I wonder if people would be interested in elaborating a little bit on you know, what, what the object is, if any, that holds our work together. Like, you know, um, if you were doing work on law and literature or law and art, you might <laughs> want to have a definition of what the literature was and you know, um, what you meant by art or, or, or you know, what have you. And I just wonder to what extent we understand we're 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 part of a you know a, a community that's that's talking about a similar set of objects. So, in other words, international law and what right or, or law and what? What's we 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 said computation as a kind of a placeholder, but we but we've 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 proliferated many other terms. And I just wondered if anybody had any thoughts on you know what that. What, what that thing after the end is that holds our work together or doesn't hold our work together and or more more importantly like why would that question matter or is that the wrong question you know um what can what consequences does the characterization of the thing that you're working on in addition to or alongside or through law have for the work that you do like is it imp are, you, are you invested in the fact that you're working on big data andre or like do you think Fleur, that the key thing is to be working on Monte Carlo algorithms. I know recently you've spoken about the digital, right? But that's a different kind of an object. So I'm just kind of interested if people want to, if people can elaborate or maybe provide an example from their own work on how they characterize the the field that they're working into or um, that chime any bells with anybody? Yeah, I mean, maybe I can give it a go um, because I think that to me, this question comes down to something um, where I wonder how do, as I said before, how do we engage with these phenomena, call them as you may. We can we can make a list of all of them and give them different names and then be very contextual and specific about we, about what we are speaking. And I think that's very important. But I do also think that there is a question in general now coming from this very particular tradition of critical international legal scholarship. Um, how, how can I bring this to these phenomena that I'm studying? How much of that critique that I, these tools of critique that I learned work on this um, phenomenon that I'm studying and how, how does that translate? So I think that's the intuitive move to try to bring that. And then I think we see that it does matter how we call the, the 
the thing that we are studying or the object of study, or even to stay away from the word object, um, the, the phenomenon that we study, because what I've seen is I've really dove in deep on the blockchain end and then expanded from there, so to speak. So that was my starting point. And what I see there is a lot of repetition of very formalist structures that from a legal theoretical perspective or um, from, a, from a jurisprudence perspective would be really close to ideas of formalism, of perfect formalism, of mathematical truth that reigns. And so that is something that I think that probably does have its place as well in what you could then call, um, I don't know, um, algorithmic governance on a different scale on when I think now of Fleur's work um, uh, of decisions at the border, how are they made? What are the, what are the, what feeds into these um, mechanisms? And there, it seems that there is a very different kind of structure going. It's not this very formalist structure. It's a, as, as Fleur termed it, uh, the just-in-time decision-making. So there is no big like decision tree that comes down, the Grund norm that holds it all together, and that's where it goes back to. But that would be very, very close to, I think, many of the, much of the blockchain architecture. So I think that defining what it is we are talking about in relation to what would be an appropriate mechanism for critique um, I think that's where where it becomes most important, and and it differs a lot. I think, and then maybe lastly to say, the idea I think that what has been popularized so much is this idea of code is law. So code as another potential word um, to work with, and I think that the codification and the code as also a legal instrument does invite this analogy of thinking through how is code like law and how is it different. Um, but I think that is really just um, half of the story. Um, okay. Anyone want to chime in? Um, yeah, I might chime in on, um, on big data. Um, and, and, and actually this, kind of just um, crystallized for me a bit listening to Andrea and your really interesting um, kind of discussion of blockchain and, and the differences between say blockchain and thinking about um, algorithmic governance processes because it made me really think one of the reasons why I'm attracted to big data as a as a term um, is for me it kind of foregrounds the fact that Often I'm actually quite more interested in the claims that are being made about these technologies than their um, than necessarily their operations. And so kind of captured in that idea of big data already is that someone's calling it big data. And that's kind of tied up with certain um, corporations that get called big tech and that they are the ones that make the claim about uh, the data being big. Um, and and I kind of wanted, I think. Partly that's been my my focus, um, and I guess in terms of, um, and this maybe comes from the humanities background as well, is that I'm interested in data. Um, I think because rather than the process, I'm interested in data as um, you know memory, um, and and also sometimes um, the claims that are made about data as data being a way of people speaking or understanding people and what they want. Um, and that's sort of my been my interest is in these claims that are made about well we actually understand what um, what people want um, 
or we can allow them to participate, we can listen to their voices, we can allow them to speak through data. And so that's, I guess, two of the threads that interest me in, in that. Could you term. give an example, Andre, of that? Uh, I think you're sort of gesturing at one that I know from your work. And I just wonder if, just to give um, a, short, a short elaboration for the, the people who don't know exactly what you're talking about. Sure. Um, yes, yeah, so I've been um, particularly interested in a, um, a UN project that um, uses machine um, learning algorithms to listen to, purportedly to, to listen to people um, in Uganda and 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 to mine from um, uh, so talkback radio programs in Uganda to um, to listen to those conversations and to then. Um, come up with a set of findings about you know, people's attitudes to, to refugees in Uganda or to kind of predict problems in refugee camps before that happened, um, so sanitation issues or that kind of thing. Um, and I guess, you know, one, um, and James, you, you'll know this image because I've, um, I've used it before in a, in a talk that you know, you've seen, but um, so I've been fascinated by one of the images that was used to promote this program, which um, involves a Ugandan woman standing in a field and she's holding up a radio um, up to her face um, as if it's a mobile phone. And all of the, the rhetoric in, um, in the promotion of the program is about how, um, you know, through this big data, this women like this are able to speak. They're able to be heard by international organisations. Of course, she's holding up a device that's... Um, through which she cannot speak, it's a radio. Um, and I, it's that kind of, those kinds of weird images that um, interest me and, and get me kind of going in my, in, my, in my work. I wonder if I can handball to you, Jake, um, just because I know that in your work, you know, you've written about, for example, um, com computational kind of, epistemics like you know like um particularly a kind of a an emergent positivism or even neoplatonism or something in computation so like that computation is quite a specific or certain forms of contemporary computation quite a specific way of knowing the world right and that and that you know critiques about for example bias in um, you know, data sets or, you know, the way in which the sensors are distributed around a city or stuff sort of don't get at that fundamental question about, well, you know, the, the way of knowing the world, which is being undertaken by an algorithmic system or a computational system itself needs critique, right? So the, the epistem is being critiqued, right? But you've also, um, written often about, you know, effectively uh, big tech as capitalism. I mean, a fairly, you know, one of the things I like about the language of machine learning, for example, is that it connects us to a, it's sort of agnostic. It's, uh, it's like, well, we, we can look to Marx, you know, for a critique of mechanization and automation. We don't need to go to, you know, all of the contemporary AI stuff and Uber and whatever, you know, so you, you've also written in a, a pretty straightforwardly kind of critical mode about, um, you know, big tech as capital. And so I just wondered how you sort of, yeah, if, if you feel that you've got any skin in this game, this definitional game, or um, if you sort of, they're, they're different registers of work that you do, or um, they hold together somehow. Thanks, James. Um, 
Complicated question, but yeah, I suppose moving from the definitional question, I suppose the political urgency that drives me or people like me to pursue the questions that we do is not to look at a, a particular technology. Because I, I think that um, in a lot of ways, it's impossible to extract a particular technology or set of technologies or techniques from the field of application. And in a, in a recent paper published this year, sort of made the claim that you can't actually think about artificial intelligence outside of the context of a firm, more or less anymore. Um, and as I've, uh, you know, taken study of digital economy more seriously, um, you know, I started with privacy law and thinking about the relationship to the person, but then in studying digital economy, thinking about um, markets means engaging with competition law and, and thinking about firms means engaging with corporations law. And I'm very interested in the way in which um, the technologies that we associate with big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, are rearranging everything within these fields. So, you know, what machine learning does to the conception of the person is, is one thing uh, that gets, for instance, instantiated as a user. What it does to, the, to our understanding of the market is another that has its own particular history, but suffice it to say, the imagination of a market as a, as a public place in which um, private rights are exchanged has been more or less entirely inverted by the platform, which has become um, a, a sort of a private simulation of a market wherein individuals are, are publicized and traded. And, and similarly, you know, the firm and, uh, and, and, and what a firm is from coast onwards, I think we really, you know, since Herbert Simon, we, we really need to, 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 to start rethinking in terms of uh, the mechanisms by which decisions are made, uh, the fact, start thinking about firms as, as more as like cybernetic unities, as, uh, you know, as um, homeostatic entities that are hierarchical organisations of automated managerialism. So like so much of what a firm does now is exercise automated decision-making with respect to its relationship to its workers, it's human resources, it's forecasting, it's own research. Uh, all of that is now the industrial application of the technologies of machine learning. <coughs> and so um, I, I don't know where how to think about the, 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 um, the definitional thing without thinking about all of that. And, and this engages the epistemic issue as well because all of a sudden what it is to participate in um, the digital economy means engaging with these, you know, this hegemonic set of instruments that um, define what uh, industrial relevant, not industrially relevant knowledge is, and 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 make that available only through their tools. And so, I'm very interested in um, these questions of like, why does law try to speak about persons, about markets, about firms in this particular way, inflected with this particular um, understanding of human agency uh, and, 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 and everything that you extrapolate from that in liberalism 
in an environment in which a, a much more scientific account of agency is actually the um, the nucleus of what's eventuated, uh, and 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 uh, the the impossibility of reconciling those things is 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 in there. So, law and what I say is law and. Uh, and the, the system of technologies and practices that are rearranging social relations in a particular way. Thanks, Jake. I wonder, I don't know, Fleur, if you don't mind, <laughs> would, would you be able to sort of help us bridge towards a conversation about law and legal institutions? Like how, what kinds of, or how this works in your work, like how do you go from the object to the legal? I mean, you've already said that you went, you started with financial instruments, but what kind of legal um, questions are you concerned with? Or how does uh, the legal, in, you know, the kinds of legal institutions or the legal problems that you're interested in, maybe political problems as well, like fit with the uh, the the whatever it is the the computation the um the monte carlo algorithm or whatever the object is that you're you know how, how do you how do you see those relationships um, maybe um this is an invitation to talk about elaborate a little bit on the infra legal or um yeah just to say a little bit more about how, what kind of legal questions emerge from the 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 problem world the phenomenon that you're studying yeah, well, I think this um, this goes back to Andrea's point about differentiation um, and comparativism, um, because a lot of the um, the kind of legal questions and the forms of power that are significant in the sector that I've been looking at for the last, um, you know, I started interviewing started interviews in twenty fifteen in the UN system, looking at this. Um, so for that period. Um, are really quite distinct from the, some of the characteristics that um, both Andrea and Jake were talking about. Um, why, and so, and and exhibit a lot of continuities with um, uh, forms of power and um, concerns that have long worried and and animated legal scholarship. So, um, for instance, uh, power predominates in um, the work that I'm looking at largely in anti-formal modes. So formalism um, is present, of course, but it is uh, anti-formalism that seems to drive a lot of the work, a concern, which is ironic really when you think of a digitality as concerned with exact reproduction. So the point, you know, um, the, the possibility of exact reproduction until it fails is something that um, rendering in a digital binary form allows. But in the settings that I'm looking at, um, this is seen as a, a, uh, opening the possibility for combining all sorts of um, ways, uh, sources of data, sources of knowledge, reference in anti-formal configurations. So, and in actually uh, configurations that are quite approximate, even though they um, are uh, upon close investigation digital, they're, they're um, in combination, they are an approximation, a haphazard approximation. So, um, could you maybe give an example quickly um, of the, the kind? What, what, what's an example of the in, of anti formalist power in the context that you're talking about? How how it tessellates? Yeah. So um, so the project that Andre was talking about, Andre was talking about, um, is 
um, a project of, of a, an enterprise within um, the UN called UN Global Pulse. And they've been involved in building a bunch of different prototypes of um, essentially dashboards that combine multiple different data sources. So they'll, they'll use government statistics, um, social media data, um, sometimes uh, news, uh, aggregated news feeds, um, different uh, sometimes satellite image data. So they'll combine a, a bunch of different data forms that have different reference, different reference, so uh, generated by different actors on different timescales, working through different media. And the, the promise that they announce is that you can put these together in ways that will be both connect, uh, but somehow closer to the real, closer to the real in the sense of um, temporally, uh, so closer to real time, but also that somehow tap into a um, something that has been missed in other forms of international legal work, something more authentic, more um, more uh, accessible, more... Um, so oh. often, uh, this is something that Andre was alluding to, uh, associated with a claim about the possibility of new actors, new voices, new, new you know, blind spots being filled in. So it's sort of this idea that you put all these things together um, and... Uh, and you will transcend the limits of um, uh, formal uh, techniques of decision. Um, so it's a kind of manifestation of um, a metabolization of, of critiques of international legal development work that have take, that's taken place over the last few decades. Um, so it's anti-formal and it's also uh, relatively indifferent or unconcerned with personal data. So this is the point of distinction from Jake's what Jake was talking about, it's relatively unconcerned with crafting or eliciting individual subjectivity. So the concern is with aggregation and, and the elicitation of collective forms of subjectivity, which often only really fairly tangentially and incidentally connect to forms of subjectivity that exist elsewhere or that are predominant elsewhere. So um, you see a turn in some of these uh, data sources, uh, these data combinations, things are measured in ways that are departures from conventional statistical techniques. So, um, so the population that you would be concerned about in a conventional statistical um, enterprise of tracking a population for governmental purposes um, is only one element among many, uh, several of which are indifferent to the population. So this is the, a kind of different kind of epistemic shift um, that takes place in that the referent um, becomes multiple but also becomes delinked from um, form institutions with and, and uh, forms of um, subjectivity with which international law has long been concerned. So the conventional repertoire of international law, um, which is concerned with things like um, participation, accountability, um, uh, equity, you know, it becomes difficult to attach to um, these forms of knowledge insofar as they um, and, and the power that they mediate or enable because of the way in which they um, are concerned with uh, collective subjects that don't correspond to that conventional repertoire. So the legal questions remain, continue to be asked in ways, you know, how can we make them more trustworthy? How, we can we, how can we protect privacy? How can we ensure accountability for error and bias and so forth? But they kind of don't work in relation to some aspects of um, 
the dashboards that I'm talking about, the decision-making tools that I'm talking about, um, because the format and the reference of those um, are quite differently configured. It's a little hard to um, to talk about in the abstract, but one, um, as, I, as I said, one of the dashboards that um, is a dashboard uh, called MIND, which is a... Uh, managing information in natural disasters. So it's a, a prototype of a dashboard that the idea is that people would be able to access this open source, um, publicly available, and then in response, in the two weeks after a natural disaster, they'd be able to look at MIND and they'd see um, a composite, a dashboard that assembled statistical information about where the population was uh, in the last census, but also you'd see social media um, representations of where need, people were saying, I need help here. You'd see news feeds that would suggest that there was something going on over here. So you'd see all these different forms of information and this would suggest a range of pathways for action. Um, and uh, and this kind, the kind of action that is invited and the kinds of um, forms of authority for that action that are called up in this platform are quite different and quite a, a multiple um, and quite different to the forms of action that an international organisation would typically um, look to make and the forms of authority that they would typically rely upon, um, in part because the sources of the data are different, but also the reference for the data are different. So the types of subjects, the types of recipients um, and targets that they call up are um, not necessarily commensurable. Mm. Was fairly long-winded. So, in some ways, the legal questions don't work anymore. Yeah. But the long-standing concern with um, forms up with foregrounding of background norms, with um, investigation of um, uh, forms of power that are um, that are you know patterned and recurrent in various ways. Um, the, 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 there's long-standing concerns and lots of continuity, um, including continuity with um, things like, I mean, one of the things driving the development of these types of platforms is um, the drive for public-private partnerships that has been going on, ongoing since the right. um, austerity politics and the straightening of, of public budgets is driving this. So there's lots of continuities that we can track but there's also ways in which um, the repertoire of questions that we've brought to bear to investigate those, those throughout time don't always work. Thank you for, um, I'm conscious that my promise of this being like fully conversational amongst the panelists has sort of spectacularly failed. So I want to, before we kick it open to any kind of audience questions, I want to ask, invite the panelists if they want to, ask anything or comment on anything that just comes out of what each other has said, um, you know, rather than me direct that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would maybe just say a little bit that I think that what Jake said about the question of the digital economy and where it is embedded, I think is a very good point. And I think it goes also to the way that Fleur has approached this before um, with questions of, okay, what is the what is the context of this? Because the UN context still has a lot of um, influence of the industrial complex, yet is a different one. So so I think that this this idea of how is the digital economy set up at the moment? How is it transforming? Um, and, and what are we making of this? This also plays very much into 
um, the questions of how blockchain is being applied in many ways, right? Because now people would, I mean, I had this moment literally seen where someone gives a little stick on, with which you can interact and hold, it's a wallet with which you can interact with um, with cryptocurrencies and you can. it's being passed to someone else and says, here's your company, literally. So because you can now operate and make financial transactions and you can do all these things, there is of course no idea of what is the legal framework for this, what is the jurisdiction for this, how does this all go, what is the relationship between the people who are receiving money and the person who is sending money. But bottom line is there's money being sent around for services or work provided in some way. And so I think that the question of what is this digital economy that that fosters these, um, these technologies is really relevant and I think can tell us a lot about the direction we are heading and why is it celebrated as this fantastic new mode of doing doing work, blockchain, for example? Well, because in a sense, it allows you to do these things, right? You say, hey, let's do something together. I'm going to pay this. You're going to do this. We're going to send money here. And you do it with a stick rather than with a bank account. And that's a very different, very different story. Yeah, I was similarly going to say that um, uh, in in my, of course, like part of my research is con considering um, alternative arrangements to what we have, including alternative uh, sort of data governance systems that move away from the sort of methodologically individualist thinking. And indeed, I, you know, blockchain is is one of them. And and I suppose. I had wondered if Andrea had any thoughts on the utility of, of blockchain um, as a data governance tool that could sort of meaningfully shift dynamics in the digital economy and sort of move away from the idea of an individual, like as a user, which is really nothing except a resource to be mined for like data and attention. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the doors that still remains open in my mind after a couple of years of researching on, on blockchain technology is this idea of facilitating collaboration and scaling um, some kind of alternative um, um, cooperation that wasn't possible necessarily before. So the same thing that applies to the firm, here's the stick, also applies to any collective trying to do stuff together across borders, um, um, across different things. There's a lot of work done on uh, complementary currencies that I think is very interesting and how that can really foster a different kind of economy. But I mean, it remains very lofty in my mind. So I have not seen this in action or I haven't experimented with this in any way. It's just that conceptually, I do see how this ease of, of collaboration and being able, and really when it comes down to being able to collect money, move money around, distribute money differently and even like have and even have uh, resources to make money. I mean, the whole crypto art world has exploded and a lot of people got very rich with it that had never any um, resources to be to get these funds from somewhere. So I think that's one thing. There is a big there is a big play to earn 
thing that is happening where games have started integrating um, non-fungible tokens that then can be redeemed and they have their own tokens in the game that then translate into fiat currency. And a lot of people have started doing that as their life uh, job because it is much more profitable. Now, I'm saying this because the, the boundaries are, are blurry, right? So now I've moved from collaborative, great um, alternative projects to earn to play, uh, play to earn. And I think that's also where the scale runs. So maybe, maybe yes, but I, I wonder what are the bigger power moves that, that make it move rather one direction than the other. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think you nailed it with that last comment. Like the, the there's no there's no limit to the specific sets of affordances and outcomes that could come from the, these kinds of technological rearrangements. But there's going to be a whole spectrum of applications of a new form of private money, uh, and that's going to be. And some of them will be super meaningful, and some less, and some will. Have affect people's lives in more ways than others. I'm conscious that it's, it's time, um, formally speaking anyway. Um, so You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I. L-A-H podcast.